You can't come in day one and basically have a $10 million portfolio and just be like, okay, I've got this now. Can I go sell it? People want to know who is this person? Kind of what's their MO? You know, what type of person are they? What type of seller are they? What type of buyer are they? And, you know, you get a reputation in this space. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Chris Seveny. Chris is a real estate veteran who has been in the industry since the late 90s, and for the past six years, he has focused his investments on mortgage notes. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. We're going to explain how mortgage note investing works here at the beginning of the show, but then we dig deeper into discussing how the decreasing and then rapidly increasing interest rates have affected the mortgage note market and real estate a little bit more generally. Are borrowers still paying their mortgages? For those who are not paying their mortgages, how long have they been delinquent and why? So much more around that. We also discuss whether, in his opinion, today is like the Great Recession and maybe some some key differences between today and 2008. So much great knowledge. If you don't know about mortgage note investing, once again, don't worry. We're going to explain how it works for you before we dive into the nitty gritty of what's happening today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lodge. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call to join our Passive Investor Club. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. Today, once again, our guest is Chris Seveny. We're digging into the mortgage note industry and how it has been impacted by decreasing and then rapidly increasing interest rates, which we've seen for about the last year and a half. So much great knowledge. You're going to learn a ton. Let's go. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dig into the latest in the note investing and debt space. But for our listeners out there who don't know about what you do, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your current investing business? Yep. First, Taylor, thanks for having me on today. Greatly appreciate being on the podcast. So our business is in a very niche market called uh, note investing, uh, which we buy distressed mortgage notes uh, on the secondary market. Most people have probably heard about private lending or originations. That's something that is on the front end. When they go to look to liquidate those loans, that's where we come into play. I've been involved in that since 2017, and I got involved in note investing kind of by accident or blame my wife a little bit. I've been, <laughs> I've been, well, I've been in real estate since 97 when I graduated college, so kind of aged myself there. But my wife and I, when we were building our own personal portfolio about a decade ago, had little kids at the time and we're in the Washington DC area and we were trying to grow our rental portfolio and we couldn't because of just liquidity, cash, trying to find deals, working W-2 and we're rehabbing properties on the weekend and my wife says, we can't do this anymore. And I said, okay, what else can I do? And then I was looking up things. I first saw tax liens and that did not kind of get me excited until I learned about mortgage notes. And I was actually upset when I first found out about them because I had been in real estate, you know, almost 20 years and didn't know these existed. But when I did find out about them, I was very passionate about it because I could do it anywhere at any time during the day while I could work my W-2. And I've been able to grow my business since buying my first note in 2017 to 
now you know we have an investment company that has bought and sold over 500 mortgage loans during that time. And I left my W-2 job uh, over a year ago to continue with this opportunity and have a staff of eight on board with myself. Awesome. I love it. So before we dive into the kind of current state of the market and what has happened in the market as a result of all the interest rate increases that everybody out there listening is certainly aware of, Tell us about just the business model generally for those who don't know about note investing and like you in the past might get a little upset that nobody ever told them about it before until now. Yeah. So the first question we always get asked is, well, you're buying distressed notes. So why are you buying a loan that somebody's not paying on? Which is a great question. And we usually will relate everything to real estate where it's no different than why would you buy a property that needs renovation? because you can buy it at a discount, work, you know, improve it, and then turn around and sell it. A note is the same thing. And most people, as kind of I reiterated to, didn't know this exists because most people think after they buy a house, their loan called Bank of America, just using them as a reference, you know, just a bank everyone knows. Uh, a lot of times they will turn around and securitize that loan or sell it. And most of these banks don't actually hold their loans. More than 50% of loans get sold or traded. And then once they go distressed based off of how our banking industry works, which is a whole different, you know, rabbit hole, you can go down how banks create money out of thin air. They, you know, go distressed and then they get taken out of securitization and typically get sold on secondary markets. And because it's such a small niche industry, there's not a lot of players in the space, you know, that buy this debt. You know, there's some larger players and some smaller players, and we kind of fit a middle of the road gap in between those two sizes to be able to get ample opportunity. Nice. Okay. So distressed debt, somebody not paying their mortgage. And we've kind of heard this song before back around the 2008 timeframe, or have we? What makes today similar or different from all those years ago when we had a lot of folks not able to pay their mortgage because their debt service rate went up so much and all these things with variable interest rate loans they didn't really understand versus today. What's distress look like today? Yeah, it's a similar but different. And first, I just want to kind of throw out there, most people who have a mortgage think if you miss one payment, the bank's going to come banging on your door and throw you out and foreclose upon you. Our average delinquency is probably three to five years. Wow. And again, let me repeat that. Three to five years. We're not talking months. We're talking years. So it depends on your state that you're in because there's a lot of different rules that you have to follow. What's different than 15 years ago is back then there was job loss along with declining real estate values in such a short time period. Prices shot up you know, 2004 to seven. And then, you know, as fast as that roller coaster went up the mountain, came back down. And there were a lot of loans out there that were 100% loans, interest only, a lot of risk in the marketplace. A lot of that has been removed. And banks have gotten, I'd say, smarter in their lending criteria. And we have a lot more equity. So what that means, though, is we're probably going to see less foreclosures but there's still a significant amount of default in the marketplace, similar to 15 years ago, and primarily because many Americans don't know how to manage money. And I don't like saying that, but you look at the reports of 60 to 70% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 
And if we have a significant job loss and we're starting to see credit card, how much money people have on credit cards, I think pass like a trillion dollars, car loans are starting to default. And those are the first things that typically people stop paying. People always pay their car before their mortgage, believe it or not, because they need hmm. to get to work. So when you start seeing car defaults, you know, it's basically a slow moving train of what's going to come next. So we're going to anticipate increases in default, but I still, it's like any recession or potential recession. It's not identical to the past one. There's differences and similarities. And if we see you know, an increase in this defaulted debt, it's going to be, I think, different than it was uh, back in the 2008 recession. Okay. So back in the day, we had falling home values, rising debt service costs for all these variable rate loans, folks who got 100% financing that had no ability to really qualify in reality. A lot of those things are different today. So do folks, are we still in a situation where even distressed property owners or distressed mortgage holders, if you will, I might be getting some of these terminology terminologies incorrect, but do they still have like a solid amount of equity and want to keep their homes? Or is that keeping them from just kind of walking away and going somewhere else? Like, is it as bad as it was before or are we in a good spot? Yeah. Great question. And today, when you think of you invest in, you know, multifamily or, you know, people who invest, you know, what do we hear about on the news? Rent prices are through the roof and trying to find a new place to live or is very difficult. And a lot of these borrowers have loans that were at two and a half, three and a half percent. So they can't buy anything and get the same value for the same price, you know, same house that they have now. And if they go to try and sell and look to rent, they're probably going to be paying more in rent. So people really are forced to be stuck in their homes where, you know, the last recession, people would just walk away because they could find housing, they could find a place and they were so underwater. Why do they want to burden with that debt today where 15 years ago, people may have been underwater 50 grand. Now people have 50,000 in equity that, well, I can sell my house and get 50,000, but I can't buy anything to get the same value or price or same payment. And I don't want to go rent because my credits also might be whacked a little bit. So their defaults, what we're seeing people do, which is, you know, honestly, the wise thing to do is file bankruptcy to try and restructure that debt so they can keep their house and get on some new type of payment plan if the lender isn't willing to work with them in the first place. And that's one area where we excel at is we're very quick to be able to work with borrowers and come up with a new plan for them. Whereas with a typical large institution, there's 27 different pieces of red tape you have to go through that may take a year. We can reach an agreement with somebody in a matter of minutes. You know, as long as they give us the paperwork and information for we can analyze, you know, pull a credit and see where they're at with, you know, their payments and so forth. We can work out something that's a win-win for both parties, literally instantaneously, where on the other side with these large institutions, it's going to take them a year, unfortunately. Wow. So you're coming in buying notes that have been distressed for quite a long time until the bank decided to sell them off to another investor. Are you buying, you might've said this earlier, but it escapes me right now. Are you buying first or second position liens and how does that, or mortgages, and how does that impact like your strategy and your options to rework the terms with the borrower? Yeah. So we primarily invest in first position liens. We do have some seconds but with first being a control freak that I am, you know, when you're in first, which means there's no other lien superior to yours, you can control the outcome better. And just want to stipulate, we buy these at a discount. So if somebody owes $100,000, 
on their loan, we're not paying $100,000. We may only be paying forty dollars to $65,000. So we're getting it at a significant discount that then allows us to you know, control the conversation where the borrower still owes us that 100000 but we can be much more flexible in the terms because we did buy it at a discount. And then once we get them on a new payment plan, after a period of time, we can then turn around, liquidate and sell that on the secondary market. Again, now as a performing loan at 80 to 85,000, you know, so you can see there's the cash flow component similar to rehabbing a property, you get some cash flow and then on the exit, you know, you get that upside. Are you investing in real estate passively, but don't know what red flags to look for? Well, we've got the answer for you, a free seven-day video course on red flags in passive real estate investing that you can get right now by going to PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. Seven days, seven videos, seven red flags in passive real estate investing. Check it out, PassiveRealEstateCourse.com. Now back to the show. Interesting. Okay. So how does, like, what do you look at when you consider options to restructure a loan to keep the person in the property, but also make sure you're maintaining a yield and make it a, yeah. literally a viable investment? Yeah. yeah. We like to call it the three Ps. We look at the person, the predicament and the property. So the person, what caused them to get into this issue? We just turned down an asset because this person had a 17 page rap sheet on them. It's the biggest I've ever seen. Wow. Another one we saw, they filed bankruptcy seven times. Well, if they filed seven, more likely they're going to probably file eight and they've never made it through a bankruptcy. They just file and then get it dismissed because it's a way to avoid paying. So that's kind of, you know, the person and the predicament, you know, typically they're death, divorce, job loss. Those are the primary three because life happens. I mean, we all have had, had something happen to in our life that, you know, has caused some type of havoc. And then, of course, the property is a third where when we buy a mortgage, unlike buying a property, we don't get to go tour the inside of this house. Now, we send somebody by, take photos, do like an exterior inspection to get an idea for the value. And typically the exterior of a home will give you an indication of what the interior looks like. If there's garbage in the front yard, overgrown weeds and grass, you know, you can imagine what the inside is going to look like where... If somebody's got, you know, around the holidays, the holiday decorations out, yard is mowed, you know, hedges trimmed and so forth. They take pride in their home. So they probably want to stay in that home, but just may have experienced some other type of hardship. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. So rates have gone up significantly since Q1 of 2022. We've seen banks get, a few banks mm -hmm. pretty much completely go out of business because they didn't really hedge interest rate risk with rates going up much more quickly than anybody really expected. Have you seen that same thing happen in the mortgage note investing industry where if the market rate goes up significantly, the market value of a paying loan, a performing loan may go down correspondingly because people want to maintain that same target yield. Have you seen, seen that same like volatility in terms of compared to like the bond industry in the mortgage note? Like, is that reasonable comparison? Yeah, it's a great comparison. And you, you hit the nail on the head from the pricing standpoint of those who have been originating loans or own loans with very low interest rates are having a extreme challenge trying to get those off their books. Because if you can go originate a loan today at call it 7% and this other loans at 3%, what discount are you going to have to pay to get that loan at 3%? It's going to be significant. 
unfortunately, a lot of these institutions, the bid ask spread hasn't caught up yet where they still want to sell it at a rate that would be less than what you could originate a loan for today. So like we mentioned pre-recording, you know, we saw about $4 billion worth of assets over the last quarter come through our trade desk. And, you know, a company I talked with who does a lot of these trades mentioned that typically they see, you know, 50 to 75% of them trading every quarter where that number has been cut in half just because of some of those spreads. One thing I'll mention is with us, we don't originate the new loans at those low rates. We buy based off of a yield. So let's just say we want to get a 12% yield on a loan. Now we just model it out based off of the, you know, maturity date, interest rate and P&I payment. You know, what do we have to pay for it to get to that yield? So as interest rates go up and loans are originated at a higher rate, it's just we're paying less of a discount compared to some of those older rates. The other area we've seen that people in our space have to be cognizant of, we used to see, especially during COVID, we would get a lot of payoffs on refinances. You know, people thought, oh my God, COVID didn't have to pay your mortgage. Was that awful for you? And actually it was best years we had because so many people were getting government funding and interest rates were so low. All the, a lot of loans we had, people were refinancing out of, so we were getting full payoffs. Now with interest rates higher, that exit strategy, we have to factor in of typically, let's say 25% of our loans, we anticipate refinancing. That's probably down, you know, single digits right now as part of our portfolio until rates drop in the future, which, you know, if I shook my crystal ball, I still think for a considerable time, they're going to be floating between, you know, I'll say four and a half and 6%. I don't think we're going to see 3% anytime soon. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Probably not. So how much do you monitor the market that you're looking to sell back into when you have a note that went non-performing, now you got it performing, you probably have some seasoning period where you need to prove that it's performing and then you might want to revert it and sell it back to the market. How closely do you monitor that? One, and two, how difficult is it to access that market? Because it sounds like something that might be hard to kind of get your foot in the door of. Yeah, it we monitor it almost daily. So the same people we buy a lot of loans from, you know, we can sell back to them because, you know, similar to like having an agent, you know, loans, they call them whole loan traders where, you know, institutions, you'll want to go sell a portfolio of one or 50 or hundred assets. You're not going to have staff full time on board just to do that once or twice a year. There's companies that do that for you, just like a commercial broker on a real estate deal. You know, you go to an expert who has people on speed dial they can call and, you know, sell these to. So that's, you know, kind of who we will go through. And we speak to them on a weekly basis, kind of get the pulse of the market. We track data for trends on kind of what stuff is selling for. Is it prices increasing, decreasing from that standpoint? And you know, the two markets are there's an individual investor who may have $100,000 in an IRA who might want to buy a few assets. And then there's the institutional guys as well who we can turn around and sell to. But like I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this for six years. It's taken six years of you can't come in day one and basically have a $10 million portfolio and just, you know, be like, OK, I've got this now. Can I go sell it? People want to know who is this person, kind of what's their... MO, you know, what type of person are, what type of seller are they, what type of buyer are they? And, you know, you get a reputation in this space. And, you know, there's people who, you know, have reputations who are very difficult. There's people who have reputations of, okay, this is a great person to work with because they do what they say they're going to do. Makes a lot of sense. So 
There's a lot of talk today about distressed debt in the commercial real estate, more specifically the office mm-hmm. space. A lot of people talking about that, a lot of headlines. Do you think or do you see a market similar to how you invest for distressed commercial real estate debt? Or since the just the situation so incredibly different, it just mm-hmm. wouldn't work. It's nothing like a 30-year mortgage or anything that terms are a lot shorter. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of similarities and differences. There's a lot of players in that commercial debt side. They're typically the much larger players because they have the capital to go in and buy a $10 million office building at, get the loan at $5 million and just be able to sit and hold that money, you know, and not, and be okay with taking five or seven years to do something with it. You know, and it's typically the larger players because they get such cheap money. You know, when back in the day when, you know, insurance companies were happy with 4% and, you know, that's what, you know, these billion dollar funds only had to do where they're getting money at 4% where, you know, you or I might be getting it at seven or 8%. That's a big difference. You know, the commercial market is very interesting because of the length of the loans and, you know, what we see, we're looking at it from a strategic standpoint of kind of doing rescue funding. If there's a deal that, their funding's expiring, we step in and assist to get some portion of the equity in the property. You know, what can we do as a capital provider to be creative in some of these deals, especially in the space where I've got a lot of people in retail and commercial multifamily, the lenders just aren't lending. I mean, I had somebody call us looking for a private loan. They had a small retail mixed use, one-story office above you know, appraised at $2 million, had a $700,000 loan on the property that was maturing, just wanted to refinance that 700 grand. They couldn't get financing. Nobody would touch it. So they eventually actually just want, they refinanced their primary residence at a higher rate to pay it off because the private money people know this. So they're offering them, you know, double digit rates to, to these clients because they know they can get away with it. Wow. Interesting. Tough times right now for some folks. Great, we have this conversation right now. We're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com Scroll down to the Stessa logo and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Chris, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? I am ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Probably most people always disagree calling this an investment, but for me, it's my primary residence. And I say that because... When we, my wife and I were looking for property, location was the primary source of location, location, location. We bought a house knowing we were going to knock it down. And because I have experience on the general contractor development side, we developed it ourselves. So we acted as the GC. We did it in 2013. I had people begging us to do the work. 
my HVAC guy just literally want, and my electrician just wanted to keep the lights on. So they almost did it for cost at that point in time. The moment we walked out of, or we closed on our house, we had over 30% equity, which allowed us to take a line of credit to go do some of the Burr strategies on some of our rentals in the area, which that kind of launched our real estate career. So, or my personal real estate career, I should say. Awesome. Awesome. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin and the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So you probably don't even know of this company, but back in the late nineties, I was say, you know, I've always been pretty good at saving money and I had about $10,000 and that's why I'd saved. And I put it all into a stock called WorldCom and nobody knows what WorldCom is now because they went under. And I learned two things from that. One is I hate stocks. And two is don't put all your eggs in one basket. And that was, you know, probably my worst investment. I have other investments that haven't gone well, but that was probably my worst one because I put all my eggs in one basket. Ouch. And I think that was a pretty big fraud case, was it not? If I remember yeah, right. It was, I think second behind Enron, you know, in regards to fraud. Wow. Wow. Tough lesson to learn, but very important. Speaking of which, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. So my favorite movie is the original Top Gun. And of course, you know, if you've seen that movie, there's a scene of, you know, never leaving your wingman. And, you know, that is a lesson where, you know, you got to stick to your guns and you can't go chasing the shiny object within a business. You want to focus on what you're good at and stick with it and not try and be the best at everything or good at everything. Be the best at something. And, you know, when you're the best at something, then you'll be very successful in it. If you're average in 20 different things, there's so many people who are going to be better than you. So they already have the leg up on you. So that's kind of, for my advice to people is, you know, stick with it and realize it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. Most of us today are very impatient living in a world of technology where news is, you know, comes over the, you know, over the waves within seconds. People aren't used to having things take years. And the reality is it does. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yep. Best is our website. That's the number seven, the letter E, investments.com. Or email me, chris at 70investments.com. And I'm all over social media as well. So my name is very unique. So you'll be able to find me. Awesome. Very active on Bigger Pockets, especially. And I want to thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see your ratings and reviews. I get to see that you're engaging with the content and escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. 